Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning, and it's been a thrill to my heart to sing the songs that we have been singing today, and uh, of course I've been preparing for today for a few weeks now, and I was able to take the thoughts that I've been thinking in preparation as we were singing, and thinking, wow, God is so good to align thoughts and uh, the way we uh, will develop our, our message today in giving us immunity. So I trust that as you remember the songs that we have been singing together, that as we go through the message, that you will have the same sense of appreciation for how God's design is, is, is gracious, to say the least. Uh, if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Today we're going to continue our study through the Gospel of Mark as Pastor Tim has been doing most of the, the messages and uh, has been very encouraging in doing so. Uh, and while we go through the book of Mark, we have to remember that the events that were taking place over the period of two or three years uh, that are written in 16 chapters We're taking several weeks and somehow trying to keep the unity of thought through all of that, uh, making sure that we do not take each instance or each story out of its context. And while there are many truths and many individual things that we can learn about God and learn about our faith in doing those types of studies, it's very important that when we go through uh, studying God's Word that we remember the, the big picture. And the, the Gospel of Mark in and of itself is just a small part of a big picture of God's redemptive work throughout the history of mankind. But here in this Gospel, as we come to chapter 11, we come to an interesting part of the Gospel. It's a, it's a transitional period. For the first ten chapters, what we have been learning about Jesus' ministry has been pretty much dealing with uh, the land outside of Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't go in and out of Jerusalem throughout his ministry, but Mark has been dealing pretty much with the Galilean ministry, uh, dealing with those outside the city. But however, we read in the first verse of chapter 11, the thought that was, had already began a, few, uh, a chapter or two before, and that he was on his way to Jerusalem. And that is significant in the sense that when Mark is portraying Jesus' approach to Jerusalem, he's really meaning when it's coming down to his death, burial, and resurrection. So all that we've been learning about the Son of Man, all that we've been learning about faith in Him, all that we've been learning about the humanity of God in the person of Jesus Christ is all coming to a fever pitch. Much of Mark's gospel is going to be relating specifically to that final week of Jesus' life before he dies on the cross and as he's dying on the cross and his resurrection from death. So you must understand that Mark obviously finds it very important that everything that he's writing is built within the context of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's also important to remember that as many scholars believe that Mark's gospel was probably the first of the four that was written. Uh, It was written to primarily a Roman or a non-Jewish audience. 
And so as we go through the Gospel of Mark, these things sort of stand out as Mark describes things that maybe a non-Jewish person wouldn't understand and maybe leaves some things out that a non-Jewish reader would have no interest in or maybe nothing to relate to. But as we come to chapter 11, we begin reading in verse 1 of what is typically called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we read... Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought forth the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches and they, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who has graciously inspired these words of mere men so that we might know the mind of God, so that we might know the will of God, so that we might know the grace and the love of God. And I pray that that same Spirit, that He would have liberty and freedom in our minds and our hearts to teach us. Father, please open our eyes so that we might see the wonderful things that are found in Your law. Lord, open our ears that we may not only be hearers, but give us an understanding that we might also be doers. Father, I am... Committing this time to you, for I realize I, I can do nothing apart from Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would speak. I pray that people would in this auditorium would see through me and see the cross, see the Christ who died on the cross, so that they might have faith that leads them even into eternal life. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may recall from Mark chapter 10, the last situation that Mark describes before what we just read about Jesus entering to Jerusalem was about the healing of a blind man. This followed immediately a discourse that Jesus had between two of his disciples who wanted to be on the right hand and the left hand of his kingdom. And Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, places this account of a blind man being healed to signify that, you know what, you still need to have your eyes opened. You don't know what you're asking for. If you only knew what was coming for you, you may not be so willing to, to and be so enticed to be a part of that. So with that in mind, they draw near to Jerusalem. Whether they made this journey shortly after or straight from Jericho, or if this was sometime in between the fall or the springtime when they would be celebrating Passover, we really don't know. It's not really that important. But as they were drawing near to Jerusalem... Jesus does something that he has not really done before. He starts bringing attention to himself. 
He starts laying out a plan. He said, as you draw near, I want some of you to go ahead of us because there's going to be a colt tide that has never been ridden. And I want you to bring that colt to me before we go into Jerusalem. That's somewhat strange. Uh, Okay, we're going to Jerusalem. Jesus has already made them aware that we're going to Jerusalem so that the Son of Man may suffer. He's alluded to his death several times and to his resurrection. So they had somewhat of an idea, but it was still a little clouded. Again, the blind man receiving his vision seems to be often portrayed in Scripture as a progressive thing. And so as they make their way to Jerusalem, he sends them on this task. And just as he warned them that there would be some people that would say, Hey, what are you doing? Gave them an answer. The Lord has need of this colt, and as soon as we're finished, we'll bring it right back. And they found that to be true, and they let the colt go into their possession. They brought it to Jesus, and they immediately put some cloths on top of the, the colt that had never been ridden. And Jesus sat upon it as he made his way into Jerusalem. Now, if you think about a coronation of a king or a queen, this is not exactly the picture that you have in mind. Consider, if you will, when, if the day comes before the Lord comes back, that Queen Elizabeth in England, who is greatly revered around the world, many people will watch every step that she makes and listens to every word that she says. And let's say that her passing comes and it's time to coronate the King of England. Can you imagine the uproar that that would create? Can you imagine the attention that would be brought upon this small island in the North Atlantic Ocean? I mean, think about how many people would get up early in the morning just to see a princess get married. And all the pomp and circumstance that go along with that sort of an event. I wonder how many people, if that were to take place in England in our lifetime, would get up early. I want to see it. I want to, be, I want to watch it live. Or maybe there would be some people who would want to actually go there and, and see it for themselves. Because this would be quite a grand event, right? I don't think that you would expect the King of England to come strolling into London in the Westminster Abbey riding on a small donkey. I don't think that you would expect there to be a small crowd gathered around walking me in, but it, there would be police barricades, there would be all types of escorts, there would be planned ahead that you wouldn't be able to get close to where this procession would be taking place. And then once it was over, what would take place? There would be Balls and, and, and parties and all different types of events to celebrate what was happening. The excitement would be something you couldn't contain. It would be something that people around the world would be celebrating, even though they weren't even a citizen of that country. It's just something about the spectacle of a coronation. But no more than this humble Savior being born in a stall is his entry into Jerusalem. Yes, there were those who were going ahead and those who were behind. There was a crowd. Not exactly sure what that means. 
Thousands of people, hundreds of people. But there were those who were singing that which we read together even this morning from Psalm 118. Saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom. Jesus has been avoiding this at all costs throughout his ministry. He told people when he healed them, now don't tell anyone who did this. When he taught with great authority, he tried to silence the crowds and and not to draw attention to himself because the time had not yet come, but now the time has come. The Passion Week has arrived. And it is time for the Son of Man to give his life. It is time for him to confront the world which he came to save. And so, when he comes in with the singing and the shouting, it comes to an end. People go home. There are no parties. There's not even what's written in the text. An expectation of, okay, now let's go get your throne. For whatever reason, it reminds me of John chapter 6 when Jesus fed the multitudes and the next time he spoke, they realized that there was no food. They left. Even to the point where Jesus asked his own disciples, will you leave me too? Jesus had experienced this a number of times throughout his ministry up to this point, and this, so this was nothing new for him. But this is a transition in which he will truly get the attention of all of those who lived in his day. They would understand the reason for which he came. Some would hate him even more, and some would come to love him as they understood who he truly was. So, the triumphal entry, as we call it, which, again, not a lot of triumph here. There's not a lot of victory here at this point. Thankfully, we know the rest of the story. But we'll go on through chapter 11. In verse 11 of chapter 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, uh, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. By the time this processional made its way into the gates of the city, he looked around, went into the temple, which that would be the entire structure, the the whole complex. It was late. Most of the ceremonies and the sacrifices and all the rituals had already taken place. Everybody had already started going home. But Jesus observes, and I think it's very important that we acknowledge what the text is saying here. After looking around at everything... It was already late. He went with the disciples probably to some friends' homes in Bethany, which was just right outside Jerusalem. And he went out with the twelve. Now on the following day, now remember, Jesus has already observed everything taking place in the temple. This was Passover. There would be people from all over the land coming to celebrate this annual feast, celebrating the exodus out of Egypt. Verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. 
Again, Mark mentions this. It's, Mark is very clear to, to show Jesus' humanity much more in depth than the other three gospel writers. But he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Unless you think that this was like the precursor of the Snickers commercial, where Jesus is not himself when he's hungry. It is a demonstration of his humanity. He was hungry, he was looking for food, but this is much greater. You notice the disciples heard what he said. They took note of it. It wasn't that it was just audible in their ear, but they heard him. They never heard Jesus curse a fig tree before. They never had an instance where he would react in such a way simply because, as Mark puts it, he was hungry. So what is the point? And I can tell you now that there are hosts of explanations as to what is meant by Jesus being hungry, by Jesus cursing this fig tree. And hopefully what you'll hear me in explanation of this text say won't be in too great of contradiction to any of them, but hopefully we'll be honest at least with the context of the passage. But we have to wait because Mark makes us wait. He doesn't deal with the answer right now. So think, Jesus has entered into the temple on Sunday. He observes everything going on. He goes to bed that night. He wakes up hungry the next day. On his way, there's a fig tree that doesn't have any fruit on it, just a bunch of leaves. He curses it, saying, no one will ever eat any fruit from you again. The story goes on. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out that now if you didn't think that he was angry because he was hungry first by cursing the fig tree now you really think because he's hungry he's getting angry because what does he start doing turning over tables running people out of the gate of the outer court of the temple those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple Pretty fiery scene. This is some of our favorite texts to to blame our anger towards other people when they do wrong, right? Well, well, Jesus got mad and he overthrew tables, so that's my justification for doing so. But again, what is going on here? He observes the temple. He goes seemingly to get some rest. He enters back into Jerusalem hungry. He curses a fig tree. Now he's turning over tables, running uh, people out of the temple that he doesn't believe should be there. To this point. And And he was teaching them, verse 17, and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you... You made it a den of robbers. You see, this all started when Jesus entered and saw the temple, observed, went home, 
woke up, was hungry, cursed a fig tree, and now he's making a declaration. Do you not understand what the Word of God says about the temple? My house, a prayer? I think here we need to make sure that we understand three basic elements here. First of all, what the original intention of the the temple was for. Next, I think we need to look at what it had become. And then finally, understand and appreciate what it would come to be. In order to find out what the the original intention was for, I think it would be helpful for us to go back to Jeremiah. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah. And we're going to look at chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, I'll begin reading in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. So the house of the Lord's house, or the house of God, was a place of worship. And he says, Say that the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, Then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. So this is a a message of correction. Jeremiah is addressing the people by God's word saying that if you will amend your ways. So apparently they're not doing something correctly, right? Or else they wouldn't need to amend their ways. Behold, verse 8. You're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely? And offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known. Then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered. That you may do all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. But go not to my place which is in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at the first. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. I called to you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. You see what happened here? There was a house of prayer, that, a house of the Lord, a place of worship in which people would come and make sacrifice so that they could properly relate to God. And as they left, properly relate to each other, fulfilling the, the commandments of God according to the law in which He had instructed them. But what they were doing in Jeremiah's day, or up to this point, is they were looking at it as a place of refuge so that even in their sin, they thought, as long as I went to temple, 
made my sacrifice, provided my offering, then all is good. It would be like a person today. Living like the devil throughout the week. With plans of going to church on Sunday, and as long as I show up, put a tithe in the offering plate, have my Bible with me, whether it's on my phone or in my lap, shake hands with people, sing loudly, then I'm all right. I'm going to bring my sins on into the sanctuary. And I will say, the Lord has delivered me. These people that Jeremiah was preaching to, by the way, were so far gone that in verse 16, God lays a very heavy declaration in which he says, do not even pray for these people. God had an intention for the temple to be a place of worship, dedication, and service. What it had become in Jeremiah's day was an abomination to God. In Jesus' day, things had only gotten worse. What was going on now, not only were the things that Jeremiah was to prophesy against going on now, but they had even added even more rituals to it. Rituals that they were not even keeping. Such as, you cannot use the courts of the temple as a shortcut to go from one side of the city to the other. Don't, you know, be a, for instance, a painter. Don't carry your ladder and your bucket of paint through the temple to get from one side to the other to save yourself some time to get to where you're wanting to go. Don't carry that stuff. That was their tradition. God didn't say anything about that. But they had added it. But Jesus even confronts that. Those who, in, back in Mark chapter 11, he drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, those who, he turned, overturned the tables of those who sold pennies. In verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. They had taken the temple of God and made it, as Jesus says, in reference to Jeremiah chapter 7, a den of robbers. Not that that would be where you would be robbed, but that's where the robbers would go to feel safe. And while there is a distinction between the local assembly place, our church, and with the temple, in an Old Testament sense, May we never get to the point where we make people feel like the church is a sanctuary for their sin. Now this is a sanctuary for sinners. This is where we find the Word of God being taught so that the Word of God can change our life. But never let this place be a place where sinners can come and feel comfortable. There's way too many other churches that are wanting to make sinners feel comfortable. We're all about seeing sinners become believers. Do you remember I said we don't only need to see what the temple was intended for, 
what it had become. But I think it's also helpful for us as we go through the rest of this passage to, to consider what the temple would become. And for that, I would like for us to turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. And hopefully some of this stuff that we were singing about earlier, again, these are some of these thoughts. Oh, yeah, that, that's good. Yeah, I remember that. But in Ephesians chapter 2, you'd have to have an understanding of what the temple complex was like. Because we get in our mind that the temple was the structure, the, the, the place where the priests would go in, we may even know enough to know that within that same structure that there was a, a huge curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the inside of the temple that even the priest would, only if he was consecrated once a year, be able to go into. The veil, if you will. But outside that structure... The temple complex would have different courts, and there would be courts where the men could go and worship, and outside of that there would be a wall, and outside that wall would be a place in the courts where the women, the Jewish women could go and worship. And then there would be even another outside place that only those who were Gentiles were able, that's as far as they could get. And what was happening in Jesus' day in that context is that the, the, the money changers and the people walking through with their non-temple related stuff making a shortcut through the court it was in that Gentile gate well this was Passover Uh, and Isaiah had already mentioned that my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations that's what Jesus was referring to and all of this commotion was going on out there I've heard preachers use in the past of the money changers being kind of like when, uh, now I don't know if anybody can relate to this, I, I, I can to some degree, uh, of having you know, some uh, uh, musicians or, or singers come and, and have a, a concert at a, at a, at a church and uh, everything was okay just as long as they didn't sit there. Of course, in my day it was albums and, and cassette tapes. But I guess in today's world it would be uh, you know, maybe CDs or DVDs or something like that, and have a table where they would be selling their wares outside in the foyer of the church. Now let's try to think if you had a situation like that, if you had a, 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 an event going on in, in this building, which we were trying to reach people for Christ during, and we had so much stuff set up out in the foyer selling stuff, t-shirts and DVDs and uh, all different types of book tables and, and all this stuff. It was so crowded that people couldn't get in. Well, well, that would somehow defeat the purpose, correct? And so in the temple, all of this commotion was going on outside in the outer gate or the outer court. And Jesus was upset because it wasn't room for the Gentiles whom he had prophesied in the book of Isaiah that the temple would be open to them. Now, notice how Jesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, has eliminated that. Ephesians 2 verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at the time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, 
having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, you're on the outer courts. That would include every single one of us. We're not Jewish. But, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, who you who formerly were far off, out there in that Gentile court, nowhere close to the temple, now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood. If you've been in our Christian growth groups here the last couple of weeks, we've been learning about the atoning sacrifices, the shedding of blood in grotesque ways. Why? To make atonement for sin, or at least in their day, to project the ultimate atonement for sin. But now in Christ Jesus, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both our Access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, catch this, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you, also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You want to know what Jesus was doing there? That last week before He died on a cross, He entered in, observed. The following day, saw a fig tree not producing fruit. Curses it. Goes into the temple, and as most Bible head, headings would say, cleanses the temple. But let me suggest to you that he was doing something much more than cleansing the temple. He was indicating that this temple would soon no longer not only be necessary, but that temple was not going to soon be there. As a matter of fact, not sh- just a sh- few, maybe a year or two short of when it was destroyed. It was finally finished, but it was destroyed in AD 70. Less than a lifetime away from when Jesus made a prediction later on in the gospel. But it wasn't because there would be no temple. But just like most things that we find throughout the Old Testament, it was just simply a picture of something much better to come. And we have the benefit of the Apostle Paul writing to us, disclosing to us exactly what that is. Is that those of us who are believers in Christ, those of us who have been brought near and made united with all the spiritual blessing within Abraham, 
by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are being built up into this dwelling place, the church. That's who we are. That's what Jesus was speaking of. That's what was going on in that day. So he wasn't cleaning it up so it would be better. He was indicating through his overturning tables of people, taking advantage of those who were out of town, having to purchase a sacrifice while they were there. People being extortioned because of paying exuberant taxes on what they were buying when they exchanged their money there in the temple. He said, enough. Knowing that one day there would be something much better. Back to Mark chapter 11. Verse 18 says, The chief priests and scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. It was upsetting their business. It was revealing their sin. And instead of repenting, they sought to kill him. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. Now as they passed by in the morning, verse 20, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. You may have forgotten it because we got to talk about the temple a little bit, right? Well, Mark had a reason for that. And Peter remembered. Of all things Peter did, remembering, is found here that he remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. That's what Jesus said he was going to do, right? He said you're not going to bury more fruit. Nobody's going to eat. Hey, Jesus, did you notice that tree that yesterday when we went into the city, uh, you cursed it and said nobody was going to eat from its fruit anymore. Did you notice it's dead now? Peter was a bright guy, right? (laughs) Further and further along, his faith just kept on getting bigger and bigger. He started to understand what Jesus was really doing, right? And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Now what could he be talking about here? Have faith that when I curse a fig tree, it's going to wither up and die? Well, if that's what Jesus says he's going to do, yes, you have faith in that. But is that what Jesus' point was? What was he wanting them to have faith in? What what was the purpose of having their faith in God? What was the purpose of that? Well, it's no different than the purpose all throughout the gospel. But specifically speaking, is to understand what just happened in the temple. They had grown up doing what? As Jewish people, worshiping in the temple. What did they do when they went to the temple? They, they remembered from wee little lads and uh, little lasses uh, about going into the temple with their sacrifices, with their unblemished lamb, with their grain, with their pigeons, with their doves, whatever the animals that they would be bringing, sacrificing. They would recall this and it would be their life. And Jesus, in this context, has just done what? He has literally upset the temple lifestyle. 
for the purpose of one bringing Peter's attention to his word and his work. Just as you can believe Jesus when he curses will accomplish it, when Jesus has been telling them about his work, guess what? He's going to accomplish it. Peter, you rightly see that that fig tree right there has been withering away from the moment that I spoke a curse upon it. Now have faith in God. For truly, if and some would say this would even be better read in an, in an indicative way, since you have faith in God, either way works. But truly, I say to you in verse 23, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you, and you have receive it, that you have received it, and it will be yours. Jesus wasn't again starting a televangelistic ministry. He wasn't writing a bestseller book for people to get what they want. But what Jesus was saying, have faith in God, and that faith can move this mountain and toss it into the sea. The traditions that you have grown up with in your life, this mountain, this mountain that Jesus spoke about to the woman at the well, there's going to be some who will go up to the mountain and some will go to this mountain. Jesus is saying this mountain will be overthrown. You need to believe in me and believe that I will carry this through to what Paul eventually speaks about in Ephesians, this mystery, and bring it to pass. And whenever you stand praying, which would be the normal way a man would pray in the temple, unless he was very repentant, he would fall on his face. Rarely would they sit and pray. They didn't discover the you know, efficient way we've, we've learned how to do that. But when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What was the purpose for the temple? To be able to go in to make reconciliation with God so that when you left you could live properly with man. When God gave the commandments, he gave four commandments how to deal rightly with him so that you would in turn go and deal rightly with others. Jesus is saying here, when you come into the temple, when you come into what I am going to bring about, when you come into this building, that you will be a part of the building. When you stand praying, when you stand communicating before God, then you better make sure that your relationship with others is right. Just as much as you're concerned with your relationship with God being right. See, oftentimes, that may be the sin that we come in and find shelter with inside the church. We might find justification sometimes to hate or hold bitterness or hold things against others. And we feel like we can come into church and everything is absolved. We're not standing rightly before God if that is the case. We need to understand within the body of Christ, within the church, we better not enter into a time of fellowship, a time of worship. Unless we have both made restitution with God, confessing, 
repenting as well as restitution with mankind. Dealing with other people graciously as God has graciously dealt with us. Even as the, the love of God has been poured out into our lives, we pour that out into the life of others. And Jesus, in this instance, gives Peter an opportunity to graciously understand what his work is all about. I wonder what your response would be to that. Would you, could you understand like in, in faith like Peter? Can you understand that the whole purpose of Jesus' life, what Mark is going to devote most of his gospel to talking about, is about the passion of Jesus Christ and his dying, making restitution, making atonement, as a substitutionary sacrifice, the only type of sacrifice that would ever be satisfying to the Father who demands righteousness through his blood. Have you responded to that? Positively? Could you be like Peter being the object of the question? Have faith in God. Is that what you're trusting in today? Or, as we find in the remaining verses of this chapter, would you find yourself like the religious leaders? And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple... The chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Who gave you the authority to turn over those money changers tables? Who gave you the authority to run people out in the, in the outer court? And just as Jesus often did previously in his ministry, when those who were unbelieving, those who were skeptical, only those who were trying to trap him, gave them no answer then, he gives them no answer now. At least not directly. He makes them think it through and come up with the answer on their own. As he says to them, consider John the Baptist. Is it from heaven or from man, his baptism? Answer me. Verse 31, they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, that, well, why did you not believe him? And if we say he's from man, then the people who we're afraid of will, re will reject us. For they all held that John really was a prophet. They were in a quandary. They either need to fess up believing that he was from heaven just as John the Baptist was, or he's not. Which meant they'd either have to repent, or they kept living in their sin. They chose their sin. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. They knew. They knew. But they were unwilling to repent. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. He gave Peter some insight on why he did those things. He fulfills to us through his word why he did those things. And giving us an understanding that a new temple would come. A new temple that we would be parts of as each member of the church being bit by bit built upon this foundation in which Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone.
Have faith in that God. Have faith in that work. Have faith in that word. Don't seek to find sanctuary with God's people in your sin. Find it to be a sanctuary to be delivered from your sin. If you would bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. I would like to ask you a question. Have you been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ? Do you find your dwelling place in the temple, the body of Christ? Or do you see yourself as another blind person having your eyes open to see the wonderful thing in Christ's life and death and resurrection? Is that where your faith is today? I would encourage you to respond accordingly.